Today's sponsor is Audible, which has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash decode. Hi, I'm Lauren Good, Senior Editor of Technology at The Verge, and this is Too Embarrassed to Ask. It's a podcast all about making technology easier to understand and use. If you have questions about tech that you've been too embarrassed to ask, this is the podcast for you. Our motto is, no question is a bad question, although my co-host Kara usually disagrees with me on that. You can submit your questions in advance by tweeting them to at Recode or to me directly at at Lauren Good with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. That's two R's and two S's. You can also find all of our past episodes on iTunes. That's at iTunes.com. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review. Unfortunately, Kara couldn't be on the podcast today because she told me she's prepping for her speech for the Democratic National Convention. Although I looked it up and they haven't actually invited her to speak, so maybe she just said that to get me out of her hair. But today on Too Embarrassed to Ask, we are recording at the Stanford University Virtual Human Interaction Lab. On the podcast today, I'm joined by Recode's Alphabet reporter, Mark Bergen, and Stanford professor, Jeremy Balanson. Mark and Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the lab. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So just before we started this podcast today, Mark and I had the opportunity to get some demos, never before seen demos in the human interaction well, see, Jeremy, actually, we have a hard time because you, you chose not to call it the virtual reality Sorry. lab. So Sorry. is there a reason why you Sorry. call it the virtual the human interaction lab? There is, actually. So we are part engineers, but our strength is really doing social science to understand how VR affects the mind. Yeah. So when I was naming the lab in 2003, I didn't want it to be about the technology. I wanted it to be about the people. So we named it the Virtual Human Interaction Lab because we're really studying how people use the technology and what the applications are as opposed to building things from an engineering standpoint. So go back to 2003 when you first started this lab. What kind of technology were you actually working with? So my PhD was in cognitive science. And in 1999, I actually went to a lab at UC Santa Barbara where I learned how to do all the hardware engineering for VR. And the system I brought to Stanford in 2003 was a similar version to the one we'd been using at UCSB. It involved the same tracking system, actually, uh, this uh, optical tracking system that looked for LEDs on your body. So that part was similar to what we have today. From the head-mounted displays, when we started the lab in 2003, we used the Virtual Research V8 cost about $15,000 resolution, 640 by 480 in each eye, field of view about 60 degrees. So, you know, not massively, massively different than what's out there today, just more expensive, more clunky. What would you say was a, a tipping point or the first virtual reality headset you've used in recent years where you thought, okay, we can actually, this could actually happen. This might be something that consumers can access. I mean, the difference in the head-mounted displays has not necessarily just been quality. So the head-mounted display that we have over here mm -hmm. is the Envis SX111. It costs $40,000. It weighs about five pounds. It's really heavy and uncomfortable to wear. However, the resolution and field of view are, you know, in the same ballpark as uh, the systems that we're using today. Perhaps the, the frame rate is not as high. It updates at 60 frames, not 75 or 90. But in general, the quality of that was, you know, ballpark of where you're at. The difference is it's really uncomfortable 
and you you know you can't have two of them when this head mount display breaks or goes down we would stop the lab ship it all the way back to boston you know have to wait on our research so the neat thing about today is a how light and fluffy and comfortable they are uh and b just that you can have a lot of them you can do research in, in different types of ways mm-hmm. so the, the videos we went through you guys can see that uh, we tested out earlier i got it at our facebook page facebook.com slash recode.net uh, we want to talk to you a little bit about what we did uh, and the first one was the plank walk which i will uh, happily boast that i was able to walk across but lauren uh, did not and it, it sounds like from our conversations with shawnee in your lab that there's a, a fair amount with uh, maybe like 25 percent of participants that that you bring in here are um this is you're in a virtual room and there's a plank and there's a huge drop off um, and some of them are just you know too nervous to, to walk across can you talk what, what's the point of that exercise I'm like the reason we have the virtual pit is twofold the first is if I'm going to convince you guys we can use VR to change your attitudes about yourself, others, reduce racial bias, help people do conservation, which is not something people want to do. The first thing I have to do is convince you that VR feels real. Uh, I like to say we should think of VR not as a media experience, but closer to an actual experience. So the point of the pit is before I frame all the other demos that we're going to show you about education and about you know empathy, things of that nature, I need to show you that it feels real. And the pit is designed to show what's called presence. Mm-hmm. Presence has been a concept studied in communication for mm-hmm. decades. Basically, we define it as the illusion of non-mediation, mm-hmm. meaning when VR is done right, there's no gadgets, there's no helmet, you're just there and it's an experience. The second reason we have the pit is that some of the research we do in this lab, which is one of the long historical successes of VR, is treating phobias. So you can use VR to have people conquer their fears, for example, the fear of heights. And there's a strategy called systematic desensitization, which is you can have people slowly confront their fears, get closer and closer to them, and shows that that strategy helps you overcome. This is something the military has been doing that with post-traumatic stress disorder. So the the strategy to treat PTSD is slightly different than systematic desensitization. That's called exposure therapy. And that's basically when you've got trauma, uh, one of the ways to treat that is to bring people back to the traumatic event so you can then treat it. VR more quickly gets you to that spot so you can then use cognitive strategies to overcome it, which is slightly different than the phobia treatment, which uses systematic desensitization. So in my um, experience, I mean, anecdotally, I had this really strange reaction to the pit demo. I, my palms literally got sweaty and I I started sweating and I decided not to walk across, even though, by the way, I've done the plank walk before in this lab and was okay with it before. So is the solution, if you're using that to sort of treat a phobia or extract some type of behavior from the participant to then tweak the VR software to iterate by saying, we're going to change this game in a sense, this application so that we, we get a certain result. Or is it that you just have the human continue to interact on a repetitive basis until they change. Well, first off, Lauren, you shouldn't feel bad. Uh, (laughs) Neither Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, nor Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, would step off either. So you're. you're Oh, it looks like I have a future being an NBA commissioner. Yeah, you're you're in very good company. A lot (laughs) of very. Like Roger Goodell. (laughs) There's a lot of very very tough, strong people don't do that. So first of all, you shouldn't feel bad. Uh, Second of all, it's probably a rational behavior to not step off that plank. Right. So when you said, what would we do for fear, treating fear of heights? If you had an actual fear of heights, I would never use that exact simulation because art one can make a strong argument. You shouldn't walk that plank. It's mm-hmm. not a safe strategy for anyone to do. Right. See, Mark, you're irrational. Well, I mean, I, think, I mean, yeah. when when people are designing games and experiences now in VR, I mean, like, are they is there sort of kind of a guiding principle that like you wouldn't do this or you, you'd warn consumers that say like this experience, if you do have a certain fear of heights, maybe you shouldn't play this game. 
Well, let me finish up on the systematic desensitization, then we'll get to that sure. pretty big question that you just asked. Um, so in general, yes, the way it works safe, it's fear of flying. And the first, let's forget VR for a second, the way that a clinician would have you overcome it, the first session, you'd just drive by the airport. Session two, you'd actually go up to the counter and, and slowly you'd get closer and closer to your fear where, you know, you can kind of build up leveraging and bootstrapping those past experiences. So that, that's how it works in the physical world. What VR has to offer is you can do very expensive, dangerous things that you couldn't do easily in the physical world. For example, just forget dangerous. It's expensive to pay for the ticket to actually go through security. And if you're just going to use that for systematic desensitization. Now onto the games. In general, what I like to say about VR is more so than any game technology we have now, the brain treats a virtual reality experience more like an actual experience. So Lauren, your hands sweat just now when you walk the plank. I would venture to say your hands don't sweat when you watch a movie. And they don't sweat when you see an extreme event in a video game. And, of course, our research has demonstrated this. We've worked on this for close to 20 years. And so what I always urge game designers to consider is that when you're putting players through these experiences, consider that they are actual experiences. They're not media experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're saying is that the onus here would be on the creator of the app, the game developer, whoever's making the content to sort of tailor it or consider who their audience might be. It shouldn't be like some type of like, you know, irresponsible immersion therapy where it's just like, let's just throw these people into this environment and see what effect we get. Well, one would hope that no patient would see clinical help outside of using a clinician. So I'm certainly not suggesting we should outsource therapy to, to software. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just another tool that a clinician would get to use. Mm -hmm. One of the applications that we were unable to experience but is brand new here and that I think you have a particular interest in is a Crystal Reef app in VR. Tell us a little bit about what this is. So the Crystal Reef is a product of now two and a half years. It's a seven-minute field trip where one becomes a marine scientist. You become our colleague, Fiona Kelly, and you swim through a reef and discover how carbon dioxide is affecting the oceans. And we premiered this at the Tribeca Film Festival uh, a few months back where we set up two booths using the HTC Vive system and thousands of people went through and got to swim and become a scientist. And we were actually collecting data there to see how it affects their willingness to learn more about climate change and their degree to which they believe climate change is a serious threat. And so this is one of the first self-contained experiences where you learn about science. What did you find? So we've been studying the effect of these immersive field trips in the lab for quite some time. And uh, across a number of studies, I would say close to a dozen studies, what we're demonstrating is that VR this experience, this embodied cognition where you're moving around and doing what's called experiential learning, these techniques are very effective at delivering information. Mm -hmm. One of the neat findings that is not so much about the quantitative effects of knowledge transfer, which we do study that and we do show the effects of VR on, but something I'm excited about right now is just the motivation to learn. So at the Tribeca Film Festival, I'm not exaggerating, we had a line of 100 people for 11 hours a day for seven days straight. And these were people lining up in the hundreds to learn about marine science, right? And part of that is because mm -hmm. the technology is novel uh, and people want to see what VR is like and, and the experience itself is very engaging. But on the other hand, you know, if you were to tell me that I could learn about marine science by scuba diving in this very special reef off the coast of Italy, I would want to do that as a student. And VR gives you that wonderful bridge, which is I get to feel like I'm there. The brain treats it as real, but you're actually learning. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a tactic rather than, say, putting people into Antarctica and like watching the ice caps melt or like seeing polar bears die or something. I mean, that, that's also an immersive, sympathetic experience. So in our 
crystal reef experience, you do learn how climate change is affecting the reefs negatively. So it's impossible to get the story across without showing some of the dire effects that can happen. Mm -hmm. But we do end on a positive note where there's things one can do. You can sign petitions. You can uh, talk to your congressperson. There's things that you can do to avert this before it's too late. So the big picture story here is that it's one thing to read an article about what's happening to coral reefs. It's another thing to watch a video in class, right, that's on a two-dimensional uh, screen, yeah. but it's another thing to actually put someone in that environment. And you think this is going to be a more effective education tool than maybe some of those other media? So our research is certainly showing in general, when you have a VR learning that's immersive and leverages something called embodied cognition, that it's quite effective. So what is embodied cognition? Embodied cognition, there's a theory that's been studied for decades in psychology. We know that the mind is in the brain, mm -hmm. but it turns out muscle memory, the way that your body moves is actually part of cognition. So one of the more famous studies and body cognition, if you take a pen and you hold it in your teeth and clamp that pen with your teeth so you're doing a smiling motion, the muscles of your face are smiling, and then I tell you a joke, you're going to think the joke is funnier when your muscles are doing the smiling movement compared to when I ask you to take a pen and put it in your lips. And if you hold it with your lips, the muscles make a sadder face. In other words, by holding the pen, it forces your face to, to have the muscles move that are either consistent with smiling or with a neutral face. Does it depend on the joke? Um, so the study that was from the 1980s, uh, they had them read comics. Uh, and you, yeah. the comics that you read were perceived as funnier when your face was in the smiling position yeah. than when your face was in the not. There's been dozens and dozens, probably in the hundreds now, of experiments that show that if the body moves in a certain way, it makes you feel in a different way. Yeah, and I mean, I mean the technology is now moving where you're, I mean, we're not quite there. Like I was seeing Laura in, in the Crystal Reef, it's like the hands that you're using, you don't look like your actual hands, right? They don't look like you're controlling your arm but do you see that happening in the next few years where we'll be able to have these immersive experiences where we can it actually looks like our, our arm um, inside the headset? Certainly, when we focus on the effects of the self-avatar on what we call presence mm -hmm. or body transfer, uh, we do take some pains to make, you know, say the skin color match your skin color. Mm -hmm. But psychologically, what's more important than how it looks is how it moves. So okay. we pay a lot of attention to what's called synchronous movement. If you're moving your arms in a way that are consistent with your physical movements and your avatar moves in that same way, that causes this self-presence. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I do want to close on why I think the environmental research is working and why we're showing this in a lab. So Dr. Jane Lubchenco was the head of the NOAA under President Obama for four years. Uh, in her four-year window... I'm sorry, acronym NOAA is... The National Oceanic and Atmospheric ah, Administration. I didn't know that, so some, some listeners out there don't know. I appreciate Thanks. that. Go I ahead. appreciate the reason. Reason why I say it is because I always get one of those words yeah, wrong. Yeah. So. Uh, so she was the head of the NOAA for mm. four years. In that four-year window, she saw more natural disaster occur in this country than any other four-year window combined. Mm. Uh, arguably. Much of that disaster is due to climate change, if you consult the scientists. Dr. Lubchenco tells this heartbreaking story, which is her job was to go to the areas where there has been devastation from these natural disasters and to help the victims. That's her job. Uh, and it was a great job because she got to help people. She tells this anecdote, it doesn't matter if you're in a red state or a blue state, if a flood has destroyed your town, you believe in climate change. In other words, when you have direct experience with how human activity is changing the planet, when you've got that direct experience, then you, politics go out the window. And she can tell all these stories about climate change deniers that she went and visited who, when it was their hometown, now are very supportive of trying to, to help on this. So I believe that, you know, I don't think we should just force people to watch 
polar caps melting, it should be constructive. It should be there should be science involved in the teaching of this, and we should really think about how we're doing it. We shouldn't just try to scare people. Do you see it also? I mean, do, are you doing longitudinal studies? Does it have a lasting effect? Like someone, you know, they come out of this and they're like, oh, I'm really passionate about climate change. And next week, it's like, oh yeah, I know it's a big deal, but what, right. what, what can I do? What can I do about it? Right. So one of the goals of the lab is to do more longitudinal work. In the history of immersive VR, there's been two longitudinal studies, meaning we've tracked yeah. your behavior over months. Uh, both of those studies in the history of VR have come out of this lab. In general, when we run experiments on uh, seeing if a virtual experience changes physical behavior subsequently. In general, I would say in about 20 or 30 studies, we've looked a day later, maybe a week later, and across those studies, the effects of an immersive VR treatment tends to last longer, say, than video. You know, it's not, it, it, the picture's more nuanced than that, the, but the truthful answer is we need to do more longitudinal studies because we simply don't know how long these treatments and experiences last. I think a lot of the studies we've heard about from this lab Maybe the focus is a bit on the positive impact. You're talking about people being interested in climate change. I believe you did a cow app for a while here. Was there a cow app that was related to meat eating, meat consumption? Oh, that study is going to be published in about three weeks, maybe four oh. weeks. Okay, great. So we'll talk, some, more about some talk more about it then. Um, and then the flying one, I, I did a flying app earlier today, which you can watch on our Facebook Live on Recode. Um, it's shown that people feel more capable, they're more helpful after they've experienced flying in this virtual world. So these are all, you know, the, um, Mark was a New York Rangers goalie, you know, but I but I imagine terrible, that there are some goalie. athletes that are like, give yourself some credit. Uh, but I imagine there are some athletes that are really finding the positive benefits, right, of using these applications. There also has to be a downside, right? And so what are some of the potential negative aspects of being in such an immersive environment? Well, first off, I can't look at you guys and say that a VR experience is so compelling in the brain that it causes behavior change later on and only claim it works on the good stuff, mm -hmm. right? That just doesn't work scientifically. So, you know, I, if you take the mantra that VR is closer to an experience than a media experience, then, you know, you can let your minds go with that concept. So, you know, everything that we're doing in this lab, which is designed to be these really intense self-transformational designed experiences to make you feel better about yourself and others if somebody was trying to do the opposite you could imagine the effects that that would have we choose not to do that in this lab though i think it is important research to understand what the effects of negative behaviors are too and for the people who are maybe um, interested in reading a little bit more about some of the studies that you've done where can they find information on this on our lab's websites we have links to all of our academic papers and you also have a paper that was just published recently that addresses some of these topics Yes, my colleague Anthony Wagner and his postdoc Thackeray Brown, uh, they just led a paper where we helped on the tech side and on a bit of the procedural side to understand when one experiences an event in VR, even if it's low immersive VR, and you measure brain activity in the MRI, what happens in the brain when one experiences a virtual event and then later on recalls it. And, you know, the findings have demonstrated that the way one would predict the brain to respond with an actual event is what we've demonstrated when somebody experiences in VR an event and then later on recalls the same event from VR. And people can find that where? That was published in the journal Science a few weeks ago. What do you think is like quickly like the, the implications of that? The implications of the study we published in Science first and foremost are just really understanding the role of the hippocampus in memory and getting better explication about what happens in general in the brain when people are recalling events. A side effect of this nice basic science study is it's preliminary evidence showing that the way we would expect the brain to respond with a physical event also occurs with VR. 
Interesting. All right. Well, in a minute, we're going to take some questions from our readers and listeners. But first, here's Kara Swisher with a word from one of our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Bombas, the makers of game-changing socks that have to be felt to be believed. I have a lot of them, and I'm really enjoying them. Athletic shoes have gotten a lot better in the past 20 years, but your socks have not. Bombas has spent two years developing socks that are more comfortable, better fitting, and quality made. They sent several pairs of their socks to my office, and I like wearing them. They're made of long-staple Pima cotton, which means these socks are warm in the winter but cool in the summer. And Bombas is a company that also believes in giving back. For every pair of socks they sell, they donate another pair to someone in need in the United States. On my behalf, they're going to give 250 pairs of socks to the Sanctuary, an emergency homeless shelter here in San Francisco. So find out for yourself what makes these socks so great. Go to bombas.com and get 20% off your first order by using the code ASK at checkout. If you don't love these socks, they will refund you, no questions asked. Go to bombas.com, that's B-O-M-B-A-S.com, and get 20% off your first order with the promo code ASK. Thank you, Kara. All right, every week we ask our readers and listeners to send in their questions, comments, and complaints about tech topics, and you can do that by tweeting us with the hashtag TooEmbarrassed. This week we ask our listeners for their questions all about virtual reality. Mark, do you want to read the first question? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, this one comes from uh, the user with handle CDF1982. Uh, I'm seeing games for Oculus and Vives, but are there apps? What about non-interactive entertainment like movies? Yes, and we have another a follow-up that was in that vein from Aaron Cohen, who asks, what are the latest applications for VR? That's kind of broad, but um, it seems like they're interested in maybe things just beyond games. What would you say is maybe one of the biggest areas that we're going to see emerge in VR that's not gaming-related? Well, the struggle right now in the field of VR is you've got all these massive tech companies putting in billion-dollar budgets, and many of them, not just Oculus and Facebook and Google, there's companies all around the world that are putting in lots and lots of money into VR. The challenge, and which is why a lot of people come to this lab because they want to understand more of the psychology of it, is what are experiences that are people going to actually want to do in VR? And the answer is that it's challenging. It really is a challenge. So we'll talk about movies. You know, the classic reason why movies are going to be difficult in VR is there's a thing called a director. And the director, she's brilliant because she tells you where to look, when to look. And in mm-hmm. VR, the whole point of what makes VR special is it's exploratory and you get to do whatever you want when you want and you get to walk when you want to walk and look when you want to look and you can miss a key moment where the bad guy he passes something to the other person or gives a sidelong glass and you missed it because you were staring at a plant and the plant looked really cool and and so there's challenges directorially and uh, so that's one issue uh, with film you know one of the home run apps we've seen here so uh, Mark you did the quarterback trainer Mm-hmm. So the first time we ever showed that quarterback trainer to a football coach, mm-hmm. uh, the football coach said two things. Looked at it. He turned around. First thing he said was, can you put this in here tomorrow? The second thing he said is, what can I do to make sure that no one else gets this but me? And it was the first time in 20 years of VR that I'd actually seen Every time people come to the lab, they say, that's really cool, and I can see how someday that I'm going to need this and it's going to change everything. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that we built something that people needed this second. And it it just leverages everything about what makes VR special. You have to turn your head to look around. Uh, It's an intense, experiential, expensive, rare moment, meaning it's hard to get 22 people on a practice field. And in fact, uh, the the unions legislate how long players are actually allowed to be on the field, and it's not very long. Repetitions are good to practice. So how do we practice? By doing things over and over again. Once you capture that play in VR, a player, he can just do it over and over and over again. So it was one of the few cases that 
everything. It was a perfect storm where everything that made practice special, VR worked in that way. Now, those things are rare. Those things are very rare. I mean, and if and, that uh, coach gets his way, only that team will have it. Right? So. Well, there's now <laughs> yeah. eight NFL teams using okay. it, about 20 major college programs. Is that why Roger Goodell was here? Roger Goodell came here to his credit because uh, so the narrative on Adam Silver came here. He's the NBA uh, commissioner. Mm-hmm. He came here because he was learning about trying to expand his fan base by having people experience the game from midcourt. And that's what he'd been told when he came. I politely yeah. told him, I said, uh, Adam, I don't think that's a really good use of VR for a number of reasons. Let's just take time. Why do you think well, it's not a good th- use Does of that VR? mean people would that's be good. wearing the headset midcourt while they're in watching a game? Or they would be at home watching a VR game? So Adam Silver came to the lab because he had thought that people in Asia could put on the helmet and feel as if that they were uh. sitting on the courtside, therefore expanding uh, the price of a seat to, to the world and just gaining lots more fans. And so there was a few reasons why I politely told him I didn't think that was a great use of energy from the NBA. Uh, the first one is similar to what we talked about with movies. It turns out that the camera people are really good at capturing this perfect moment, telling you where to look. It's hard when you're at the game. The second reason is that, uh, you know, I'm looking at you guys in this room uh, and I know that you guys have done a lot of VR. I could ask you what's the longest you've ever worn a helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. even with the Oculus CV1, which is a great HMD, and the HTC Vive, which is a great HMD, after a while, it gets a oh, little bit cumbersome. Maybe 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, we have, a 20 minute, we have a 20-minute rule in this lab. But just to finish the question, Goodell, to his credit, he came to the lab not to talk about fans. He came here to learn about empathy. He really wanted to understand how to think about issues of race, issues of gender. A lot of our lab's research is about having people think about becoming someone else, and that's why Goodell came. This actually seems like a good segue to our next question, which is from at um, Irfan Banji. Are people really going to put these huge headsets on uh, mainstream or niche product? Seems like glass again, which is, of course, Google Glass utilized different technology. But, but no, yeah, the I mean, point was that no about, one wanted to put on like, right, glass. Right, right. right. I think the, the point, too, is how accessible is this really going to be to normal people and not, you know, scientists and commissioners? So... I strongly feel that VR is a spectacular tool to give you these really intense experiences that can change the way you think about yourself, give you really rare moments that are from a fan experience or just a fun experience. That being said, the amount of effort it takes to make VR work really well, it's a lot. It's a lot of effort. I believe that for the next year or so, I don't think VR is going to be a living room. So I think that you're going to see early adopters do that. But I think if I were someone that wanted to leverage what makes VR great, I would go for this intermediate phase where, you know, you've got external places where you go to experience it. This is the arcade model or, you know, we, we call this B2B instead of B2C, business to business instead of business consumer. I, I, I don't think it's really ready for the homes uh, because also if you're only using it for 20 minutes, I'm not going to spend all the money on the system and I'm not going to spend all the time and effort to set it up and make it work right. So that's why your intuitions about I don't want to wear this thing for eight hours a day and it's pretty clunky is why I think in the short term for the next year or so, we're really going to see flourishing centers where one goes to do VR for various reasons, whether it's training athletes or whether it's mm-hmm. learning about uh, field trips for science or whether it's about just some fun stuff like playing, becoming that hockey goalie. I don't think it's ready. I don't think we're ready to have these, uh, I won't call them intrusive, but fairly involved systems for tracking movements and for rendering them. In- so it'd be like a, a VR destination in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, VR activation is what they're calling them, activations. I'm I'm gonna ask you a question quickly that's my own question and not listed here, but do you see a difference between um, something like the Samsung Gear VR experience that's powered by mobile, and it is mobile, you can move around your living room or wherever it might be, it's only a hundred bucks, right? Versus these, you know, tethered systems that are really high powered. Um, Will there be a convergence of these two things? In general, when, when we think about systems like the Samsung Gear and compare them to others, the biggest difference is called translation tracking. So Samsung Gear, as an amazing device as it is, it only allows you to rotate your head on pitch, yaw, and roll. It doesn't allow you to physically translate. That means walk around the room and make an update. So you can walk wearing the gear, but the scene doesn't update. So I think what makes VR very special is you get to move around using your natural body facilities. And so the the three degree of freedom, the rotation-only systems like Samsung Gear, Google Cardboard, all these other systems, they're fine. But I think that what makes VR special, in my opinion, is you got to be able to walk around. Uh, the next reader question comes in from Alex Carter. Is Apple making a big VR play? Doesn't it seem natural as a next generation luxury hardware? Yeah. I'm sure we're all equipped to answer exactly what <laughs> yeah. Apple is doing next. <laughs> I mean, tell us what Apple's roadmap is for their products, please. Has you know, Apple been in this lab? Uh, of course they have, yes. yes. But so has all the tech companies. So that's not a unique data point. Look, Apple, I think like all the companies, they're really thinking through their strategy here. I mean, the data points we have are... Uh, you know, they bought this company called FaceShift, which does mm-hmm. facial tracking for avatars. They've hired this amazing guy, Doug Bowman, mm-hmm. from uh, the Virginia Tech University, who's one of the really good scholars in VR. These are the data points we have. I don't know. Uh, as a scholar in VR, are you worried about tech companies? I mean, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, they're all, they've been hiring a lot from academia. Um, are you, is that a concern for you? Well, look, my job here is to give my grad students their dream jobs. And if uh, their dream job happens to be at one of the big tech companies, it makes me sad that they don't want to become professors, but I have to, you know, let them do what they want to do. Wait, isn't there some kind of role for independent research going forward, that it, that it comes out of academia and not these big tech companies? Well, I think the, the professor job is just too good to go away. I, I, don't, I don't feel like all the VR folks are going to go that way. I, it's, uh, it's a pretty sweet gig. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to the next question. This one came from Dory on Facebook. Uh, she said, this wasn't exactly a question, more of a statement. Would be curious about what is what interesting stuff is going on with VR and medicine. And we touched on this a little bit earlier when I referenced the demo we did. Um, it was basically a physical therapy demo, which was pretty cool. Uh, but it seems like there would be a natural segue here for VR to impact the way people are being treated in certain ways. What you know, do you think is the most compelling case you've seen so far? Look, medical VR is going to be filled with applications. In, in fact, one of the historically successful areas of VR has been things like training surgeons and, and different types of teleoperations. So we know that it works in that domain. The domain I'd like to talk about today is pain relief. So we got approached by uh, the Mayday Foundation, and they said, Jeremy, uh, we'd love to fund your lab to do an academic study on how to use VR to reduce pain. So it turns out that the same reason why presence works, meaning you feel so absorbed in in the simulation, you forget that there's not a pit there. The natural fallout from that is that you a little bit get out of your body, meaning you're so distracted by the simulation, you forget your physical body. So one of the worst kept secrets in VR, and I call it the worst kept secret, is because we've known for decades since Hunter Hoffman did his pioneering work in the 90s, that VR is so distracting, it actually reduces the psychological, the subjective aspect of pain. So pain, of course, is objective in the sense that there's stimulus going on in your skin, However, you can override that with various mental strategies. And Hunter Hoffman demonstrated in the 90s, if you take a burn victim and you put him in snow world and distract him by he's 
lobbing snowballs at these uh, penguins that the subjective experience of pain can go down massively. So since then, there's been dozens and dozens, probably close to 100 published studies on this in very reputable journals. And so when the May Day Foundation approached myself and Skip Rizzo, who's my colleague at USC, and Walter Greenleaf, who's a visiting scholar here in the lab, who's an expert in VR medical applications, we decided instead of doing just another study in pain, what we were going to do was to host an event where we brought the best scholars on the planet who study academically virtual pain research uh, and pair them with decision makers, people from uh, various government organizations, as well as corporations who are in charge of figuring out how to move forward on pain. And so this event is occurring in Los Angeles in September. Uh, and it's going to be a small event, but we're really excited about finally getting all these scholars in one room with some decision makers that can actually, you know, think about how do you get insurance to reimburse for VR for reducing pain? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the relationship between reducing opioid use uh, and VR? How do you integrate it into hospitals? Things like that. And it makes me wonder, well, I was just going to say, it makes me wonder how expensive a proposition this actually is for mm-hmm. clinics and hospitals to get this technology. I mean, I um, mentioned earlier during our, our live streaming, I, I had knee surgery with, within the past six months. and. I went to physical therapy. Unfortunately, I've been through it before, so I kind of knew what to expect. But it's like the equipment in there may have been from the 80s for all that I know. And um, it was the same physical therapy I'd done 15 years ago. And I think, okay, I would have used an application similar to the one that we saw if I had had access to it. But what kind of investment do hospitals and clinics have to make in order to get these systems in there? In so, the buildings. so I'm just a VR guy. I study VR, how it affects the brain. The reason we're having this conference is to take the VR academics and pair them with the decision makers who understand what it costs to put something in a hospital and what it, the constraints are. Because I don't know. Right? Right. Yeah, and so far, has I mean, has, this is like the first time the medical industry has has talked to VR. I mean, have they been pretty no, open? No, no. VR pain research. There's been a lot of brilliant scholars working with a lot of smart and talented government people along the way. The conversations have been had often and early. Mm-hmm. What's different about this is that because the hardware is now costing hundreds instead of tens of thousands, it actually, back to Lauren's question on cost, it is a viable strategy to, to, to give the, put this in hospital and to actually give people systems in homes and nursing homes and physical therapies, facilities, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's not really a consumer application, right? Yeah, that's, right. but in, in general, I strongly feel that mm-hmm. that's the next year or two. It's, those are the home runs. Don't try to stick yep. it everywhere. Just find the place where it works. Look, VR doesn't work for everything. Movies are still great. They should stay movies. Uh, the mm-hmm. written word is still important for lots of things. The key with VR, you know, when students come to my lab and they pitch me ideas, whether it be for a research project or we're at Stanford, everyone's got a startup idea. You know, if you give me 20 ideas to use VR to solve a problem, I'll say 19 of them will be better solved using video or mm-hmm. the written word or some other technology. In other words, VR is not for everything. And immersion is not free. It's distracting. It's you know perceptually taxing. It's, uh, it pulls you out of your world. It's, uh, so we should reserve it for the things that actually it's going to be good for. Our last question is from at Montes Lucas. It's at Montes Luco <laughs> on Twitter. It's kind of easier. a tough last name. Who asks, what will be more impactful in the next decade, VR or AI? So big topics here. A light question. You can throw AR no, in there too. That's an easy. Well, yeah. that, that's actually an easy one. So there is no virtual reality. There's no such thing. There's three separate technologies. There's tracking your physical movements. We call that tracking. There's rendering, which is redrawing graphics and sound from a new location from a different angle, which is mostly computer graphics. And then there's display, which is how to figure out the optics uh, to show people sensor information, how to position speakers to do spatialized sound, and then scent and touch if you want to do those. Each of those three separate technologies would be nowhere without the advancements in AI. So I would make the strong case that AI is so pervasive throughout 
every enabling technology in VR that I would vote for AI over VR. Can we tweak the question now? And I mean, like we talked, they talked about this last week on the podcast, but Pokemon Go has been this huge trend. It's still going strong, I think. And, and a lot of people are saying that, you know, what the tech industry has said is VR comes first and then we can get the AR. And it's like now with Pokemon Go, people are saying, well, Pokemon Go is sort of an AR application. Maybe we can get the AR sooner and in more hands of consumers than, than VR. You know, I think Pokemon Go was a brilliant game. I'm not convinced how AR it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just had a cute little picture over a, a video image. Uh, but they did something right, didn't they? <laughs> have you been playing it? I study VR and consequently don't have time to play games, unfortunately. Okay. I, I played games in high school. Do you draw the line? I mean, do you also do research on what could be called like, mixed reality and, and AR as well? Um, in this lab, we study pure... VR full immersion. I I like a world in which people can put on the helmet, have complete attention to some type of a simulation, learn, experience, entertain, and then pull the helmet off and go outside. I, I love the world in which VR exists and we do it for half an hour a day, an hour a day. Uh, the big money, of course, they make more money, the big companies, when you are using their product more often. So from their perspective, AR is wonderful because they can have you use it for six, seven, eight hours a day as opposed to half an hour. So 24, lo- why not 24? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's uh, <laughs> people, you know, why not? <laughs> How long do you think it's going to be before we start using VR to interact with other humans in a virtual environment, but not not real humans. I mean, I think about this, you know, what if people started mapping sort of their loved ones and then those people passed and then you entered a virtual environment where you could interact with them again, right? Like how far away are we from like total simulation in that, in that way? The technologies to allow capture of the appearance of one's avatar and the gestures and nonverbal nuances of one's avatar, uh, that is basically here. Uh, if you think about the different companies that are doing really good motion capture and photogrammetric capture, those technologies are here. Uh, on the personality side, you know, we're seeing a lot of advances with things like, you know, what IBM's doing with their uh, AI capture technology, things like Siri. So I think the enabling technologies are there. Certainly, there's motivation to capture one's personality. So there's a, a great guy named uh, William Bainbridge uh, who does work for the National Science Foundation. Uh, he's a sociologist who studies a lot of this kind of personality capture. He's been doing it for a long time so he's an expert if you want to check out his work it's a controversial topic to be sure mm-hmm. uh, but you can imagine that uh, lots of smart people will be putting energy there so you're saying all the tech pieces are there i'm saying this. the tech pieces are there to create the 3d model that looks just mm-hmm. like you yeah. the tech pieces are there to capture your smile your nuances non-verbally the way that you move and tick on the personality side so so the, the tech is there for the most part to capture what you look like and how you move if it were recording mm-hmm. uh, on, mm-hmm. the question is if I captured your avatar and then 30 years later asked your avatar a question about some sports team that wasn't around 30 years ago, would it produce a novel response, one that actually sounded real the way that you would answer it? That We're not there yet, in my mm-hmm. opinion. But Sounds like it's both an AI question and a VR question, and a lot of the technology is going to be contingent on that AI actually being able to process new information to yeah. create that kind of realistic simulation. I would say it's more AI than VR on the interactive side. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is an advantage or disadvantage depending on your philosophy of this very big question, which is if I could simply capture you right now, everything that you were doing now was there, it was in 3D, it was in high fidelity, so it felt like you, 50, 60 years from now, my kid could walk around, my grandkid could walk around and see you from different angles, sit on your lap. That technology is largely here. Wow. 
Great. Let's get started. <laughs> then yeah, the next podcast forever. is all about <laughs> the big ethical implications of doing that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us for Too Embarrassed today. Thanks for coming. And Mark, thank you for co-hosting with uh, me. You're welcome. Thanks. I'm glad I got this slip in for Kara. I, one day, we promise we will get Kara strapped into these VR headsets. Oh, absolutely. We need to do another Facebook to Live avoid. with that. Uh, but this has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. Yeah, but Lauren, how do I listen to the other episodes of the show? I am so glad that you asked. You can subscribe <laughs> to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. So I do that. Then I'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday and can catch up on previous episodes. You're so good at this, Mark. Yes, that's iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can also subscribe on Google Play Music, TuneIn, or Stitcher, or you can listen to every episode at Recode.net slash podcasts. And while you're there, you should check out Recode's other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. And The Verge also has some great podcasts for your listening pleasure. Walt Mossberg and Neelai Patel host Control, Walt, Delete. Neelai also usually hosts The Verge Cast. Chris Plant has What's Tech, and Liz Lopato and Emily Yoshida host Verge ESP. Don't forget to tweet us your questions ahead of time. That's to at Recode with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. You can also tweet to me at Lauren Good. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week to answer more of the questions you've been too embarrassed to ask. So tune in then. 